You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says Yahweh, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered to them, If I am a man of God... Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of Yahweh that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel?
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 797 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 16th, 2024, and that was 2 Kings chapter 1, the first chapter of A New Kings. And here we have a new king. And he doesn't last long, does he? No, indeed. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Iowa caucuses yesterday and who won, who lost, how did they place those between, who's dropped out, who is marching on. We'll also talk a little bit about Martin Luther King Jr. Day having been yesterday, something surprising that many of you may not have known about Martin Luther King Jr. We'll also talk a little bit about a treaty that is bent on imposing comprehensive sex education on many nations as a condition for economic investment and friendly relations. We'll talk a little bit about who is actually on the side of women and how some women, maybe a growing number of women, are throwing in the towel on this whole girl boss thing. It's not all it's cracked up to be. And how that's being presented in some media outlets versus how I would look at it personally, how I think you should look at it. And lastly, we'll finish off with an article that was sent to me by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, by James R. Wood in comment, can the church still speak? And if so, subtitle, will anyone listen? All of that and more in this episode. But first, let's touch briefly on 2 Kings chapter 1. It's a pretty straightforward passage, honestly. The gist is that Ahab has died, and Ahaziah is his son, and Ahaziah ascends to the throne of Israel. But Ahaziah has a little accident. His accident is that he falls through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria. It doesn't say why he had this accident, just that he did. But he wasn't just injured, apparently, he also became sick, and he lay sick, and he made a big mistake. It wasn't just a little oops, maybe it was clumsiness that caused him to fall and then become ill, but his big mistake, that wasn't really a mistake, it was a choice of intentional wickedness, it was a choice to follow in the footsteps of his father, Ahab, his sin in other words, missing the mark, was to ask that inquiry be made of Beelzebub, straight up Beelzebub, God of Ekron, whether he would recover from the sickness. For this, Yahweh intercedes, intervenes, interrupts. The messengers on their way are stopped and told, go back. You are not going to recover. You are going to die because you are acting as though there is no God in Israel, as though Yahweh is not God in Israel. For this, you will die. The response from Ahaziah is to ask, what kind of a man did you meet? What kind of a man came to meet you and told you these things? And apparently, Elijah didn't give his name. He didn't introduce himself. He just stopped them and told them these things. 
And all they have to go on is a physical description, but the physical description is enough for Ahaziah to know that this is Elijah. So Elijah knew Ahaziah perhaps, or at least Ahaziah had been present, and that wouldn't be terribly surprising, during some of the confrontations between Elijah and his father Ahab. Ahaziah recognizes the description of Elijah and says, it is Elijah the Tishbite, not just from the physical description, surely other people wear garments of hair with a belt of leather about the waist, but somebody who dresses like that and also says these sorts of things maybe is not one of the prophets who's kept on a retainer by Ahab or is still on the payroll after Ahab dies. Those prophets dress very nicely, very respectably. A garment of hair with a belt of leather about the waist, maybe this is one of those fringe prophets, maybe the fringe prophet. It's Elijah. Of course it's Elijah. What follows is amusing and also surprising. A captain of 50 men with his 50 is sent to fetch Elijah, as if that's going to change the verdict, as if it's Elijah's verdict, as if you can bully Elijah, and by extension, you can bully God. What are they going to do? Arrest him? Hold him hostage until God says, nope, never mind, never mind. I'll do anything you want. Just don't hurt Elijah. Oh, man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answers the captain of 50, verse 10, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And so it was. I imagine a kind of casual contempt and frustration, not a wringing of the hands, not some timid dormouse. Elijah is over it. And what are we doing? If I am a man of God, and he knows he's a man of God, but then to some extent, I think he's putting these men and anybody else who might be a spectator may have gathered to watch what was going to happen on notice that you're being too casual in what you're saying relative to what you're doing. You're saying one thing, but you're acting as though I'm not a man of God because you don't respect God. You treat it as some trivial thing that I would be a man of God. If I am a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. Let's prove that I am a man of God. And also let's establish what that means because apparently you don't know. And apparently these other people don't know. And apparently Ahaziah doesn't know. Ahaziah is a bit thick-headed rather than changing up his approach or instructing the next captain of 50 and his 50 to change up their approach. Maybe ask nicely. He just sends another captain of 50 and 50, which is to say that Ahaziah apparently doesn't value very much the lives of his captains and his men. This next captain with his 50 says, come down quickly. Oh, man of God, this is the king's order. Oh, it's the king's order, is it? Well, in that case, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Maybe I wasn't clear the first time. I am a man of God. And that is to say, your contention is with God. And that's why fire comes down from heaven. Not because the contention is with Elijah. The folly of Ahab and his son after him and those who are kept closest by these sorts of kings is to suppose that their beef is with the man of God. But then that is just another expression of their godlessness. They don't believe that God is to be taken seriously. They don't believe they should fear God. They don't fear God. They 
act as though if he does exist, he's just another one of the gods. In fact, he's not even the preferable one. And so comes the judgment because they're not just making a personal private decision. We read it that way because we have a certain bias because our propaganda has tried to convince us for around about a century or more, a century and a half perhaps, that religion is your own private business, but it shouldn't be part of public life. At least if it's Christianity, at least if it's Christian faith, the Christian religion, keep it to yourself or sprinkle in a little bit of emotive, expressive God talk to sanctify after a fashion what it is that you're doing, even if it's a very ungodly thing that you're doing, what it is that you're saying, even if it's a very untrue thing that you're saying, and it would dishonor God, sprinkle in a little God talk and people will be pacified who are concerned about those kinds of boxes being checked for the sake of continuity. In any event, fire does come down from heaven and consume the second captain of 50 and his 50. So we're up to at least 102 casualties of this flippant disregard for the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God. A third captain of 50 comes with his 50. And this one, whatever it is that Ahaziah or anybody else thinks they should be saying, he is going to humble himself. And he says, oh man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. The angel of Yahweh, who I believe, and I've said this before, I'll keep saying it, I believe this is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate, Jesus Christ, the son of God. The angel of Yahweh said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. It would have been reasonable to be afraid of the previous captains of 50 and their 50s, even though it was unreasonable for them to be upset with Elijah. It would have been unreasonable for them to do any harm to Elijah. It would have been reasonable for him to be afraid of them because these are not reasonable people. These are reprobates who've been given over to an unreasoning, incapable of reasoning mind. But this third captain, Elijah, arises and goes down with him to the king and says to him, thus says Yahweh, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. It's almost like the nagging is expected to work to accomplish a different result, like the people that Ahaziah is used to working with or getting what he wants from always respond favorably to bullying or bribes or nagging. If they have more power to where he can't bully them and he can't bribe them, then he just nags them. And in this case, Elijah is probably peeved. But whether he's peeved or not, the answer is not going to change. No means no. This is the judgment for you having sent messengers to inquire of Baalsebub. You shouldn't have done that. You're going to die. That was the answer. That's still the answer. And so it happens. He died according to the word of Yahweh. Because this is not the word of Elijah. This is the word of Yahweh that Elijah spoke. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now, this is interesting. Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. So the son of Jehoshaphat will be king in Israel, and his father will be king in Judah. 
curious. But that's all we've got for Second Kings chapter 1. It's odd. It's amusing in its way. It's also very sobering. And let this be a lesson to us that you should not be asking other gods to give you some special favor. Only ask God. Humble yourself also. If you're dealing with the word of God, if you're dealing with the man of God, humble yourself. Do not get too big for your britches and think you can bully or bribe or nag. Humble yourself. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. That's the biggest takeaway for me anyways from this first chapter of 2 Kings. The big news of today, though, moving right along, Trump, Donald Trump, former president, Donald Trump has won the Iowa caucuses. Trump led the field, sitting at 51%, according to reporting by Zach Jewell over at the Daily Wire. With around 90% of the vote counted Monday night, according to Decision Desk HQ, DeSantis was running in second with 21.3%, and Haley was in third with 19%. Tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy was in fourth at 7.7%. The race was called with an unusually low percentage of the vote, counted as multiple outlets, including Fox News, CNN, NBC News, and the AP. Associated Press all called the race for Trump with just 1% of the vote counted. With that 1% of the vote in, Trump stood at 53.6%. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was in second place at 20.8%. And former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley was in third at 17.6%. According to Decision Desk HQ, tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy was in fourth at 6.6%. In a speech following the caucuses, Trump congratulated his GOP opponents, saying they all did very well. Quote, I want to congratulate Ron and Nikki for a good time together. I think they both actually did very well. I really do. End quote. Quote, I also want to congratulate Vivek because he did a hell of a job. End quote. Quote, he came from zero. And he probably got 8%. End quote. Now, that's a very different tune. After having won, then he was singing right before he has been very critical of Ramaswamy, especially here recently on Truth Social, saying that he should not be voted for. Nobody should suppose, nobody should mistake him for being MAGA. There was kind of a weird gist to Trump's post to Truth Social, actually. We'll talk about that in just a minute. It bothers me. It, it does. I'm glad that we would have a clear front runner in the Republican primaries, don't get me wrong, and I've expected that it's going to be Trump for some time. It's going to be Trump. The Democrats expect that it's going to be Trump. Obviously, the corporate news media believes that it's going to be Trump because they're calling with 1% of the vote in, but still, that doesn't mean that just anything Trump is going to say is therefore cool and great because he's the front runner, even if he's elected and if he is the nominee, I hope he is elected, and he probably will be, even so. A big takeaway from Second Kings chapter 1, all of First Kings, the whole book, should be that however powerful you are, however dominant you are, you still need to have humility and you need to handle the truth rightly. But then let's talk before we get too carried away with that. First about these corporate news outlets calling the race so early. That's a 
weird thing. Back to Zach Jewell's reporting from The Daily Wire. The media outlets that called the race before many Iowans had even voted were slammed by reporters and commentators. Quote, it's indefensible to declare a winner in that situation before all votes are cast, said National Review senior writer Dan McLaughlin. Semaphore political reporter David Weigel wrote, quote, the very, very early results show Trump winning big, but the early network call is a little questionable. People are still at caucus sites and they have phones. How many people see the call and bail? It's almost as if these corporate news media outlets want Trump to be the guy. And why wouldn't they? He is the gift that keeps on giving to their network ratings. It's a love-hate relationship, you might say. If Trump is no longer a reason for people to watch their news outlets, either to be outraged at the way that they're spinning everything he says and does as a scandal, or to be all ginned up because they also hate Trump, if they lose Trump, they lose quite a lot. And they know it, and we all know it. But still, it's absurd to call the race with 1% of the vote in. That's irresponsible. And it doesn't help people's perception, the perception of the American people, that the corporate news media is objective about this and that they're just reporting the facts. It sure feels like election interference. In fact, it can be election interference, how they portray these things, especially with numbers like this. In banana republics, what happens is you're told that the fearless leader who's been in there for several more terms than the constitution of the country permits, but they rewrote the constitution to allow him to be in there for life. He has one with 98% of the vote. They tell you that sort of a thing, but that's absurd. In our country, the news media calls the race when there's 2% of the vote counted and cast. So it works a little bit different. Maybe we're a little more savvy, but not enough more savvy. But then what would be better would be being honest and not being manipulative in any event. Trump has won. And surprisingly, DeSantis has come in second place. The expectation was that he was polling third and he would come in third place. But then that just goes to show that the polling also can be used in this way to try and lead people to the impression that you might as well just stay home. Your guy doesn't have a chance. Haley was expected to come in second. In fact, she expected it so much, perhaps, that when she gave a speech last night, she reportedly said that the results had shown that this is just a two-man race now. Ooh, well, that excludes you then in many ways. One, because you're not a man. Two, because you didn't come in second. And even if you had, it wouldn't be a strong, dominant second place over and against who came in third, but you didn't even take second. So Maybe you should drop out, Nikki Haley, and let's really see a two-person race. Vivek Ramaswamy has dropped out, by the way, and we'll get to that more in just a moment. But Haley's 19%, if it went to DeSantis, would be over 40%. And now Vivek Ramaswamy, having dropped out, having taken about 8% of the vote, perhaps possibly we'd get something closer to a 50-50 and then perhaps possibly we would get a debate between DeSantis and Trump. And I think that would be good if the goal at this point is to show who is the best candidate, who is the best person to be the nominee, and ultimately, who do we believe would be the best person 
to be president, I think it would be better for us to have a debate between these two men. That's how we've done it traditionally. I think it's a good tradition to try and persuade the voters instead of manipulating the voters. That's really what's at stake here. But then the trouble is when you try to persuade and there are so many who are still addicted to manipulation, your persuasion will be twisted and they will just try to manipulate with selective edits of your attempts at persuasion. And so there's that. I'm not pretending that this is easy and clear cut or as simple as, come on, Trump, DeSantis, just get together and talk it out. No, there's more to it than that. But again, nevertheless, what we do know is a material fact is that Trump has won the Iowa caucuses and he has a strong commanding lead over the next two, DeSantis in second, Haley in third. And that's not likely to change anytime too soon. Or I would say if it does change, if it does differ anytime soon, the current trajectory shows Trump having an even more dominant lead in the Republican primaries. Some more reporting at the Daily Wire, this from Ryan Zavedra. Vivek Ramaswamy drops out, endorses Trump. And that's how it may go. It may be that all of Vivek's voters, all of his supporters, go over to Trump. And instead of Trump having a 50% roughly command of Republican primary voters, he has something like a 60%. That could happen. But from the reporting, what I was alluding to earlier, here's the quote from Trump that was posted on Truth Social regarding Vivek. Quote, Vivek started his campaign as a great supporter, the best president in generations, etc. Unfortunately, now all he does is disguise his support in the form of deceitful campaign tricks. Very sly, but a vote for Vivek is a vote for the other side. Don't get duped by this. Vote for Trump. Don't waste your vote. Vivek is not MAGA. Trump continued, the Biden indictments against his political opponent will never be allowed. In this country, they are already beginning to fall. MAGA. All right. Well, about this, it's weird and it gives a bad taste to what otherwise would be, generally speaking, a happy thing in my book with Trump winning the Iowa caucuses. Vivek, from everything I've seen and heard, has been very respectful of Trump. And the criticism here is that he's not been more outspokenly supportive of Trump as the campaign for the Republican primary has worn on. But then let's do remember, Vivek has been running for president as well. So there's that. That's not a betrayal. That's part of the process. So it bothers me. I don't like it. It is very Trumpy of Trump to say these sorts of things about Vivek publicly and then to turn right around after the Iowa caucuses and say he did a hell of a job. And it'll be interesting to see as well if this goes where most of us are expecting it to, with Trump being the nominee, it'll be interesting to see if he does backpedal a little bit with regards to some of the things he said about Ron DeSantis. And I hope he does. There were some really ugly things that Trump said about Ted Cruz, for instance, in the 2016 primaries. And then Trump wins and he becomes president and they're on much better terms. And Cruz is much more complimentary of Trump. Now, maybe they're never 
quite simpatico, not well and truly, not fully, but this is Trump and this is the process. You say one thing as the need arises and then the moment of need passes and you get what you want and you change your tune to get the next thing that you want. And I don't like this. And I think most decent people don't like this. This is probably the most off-putting and disgusting thing about politics. You say one thing in the moment to get what it is that you need. And then when the moment passes, you say some very different thing to get the next thing that you want. But then is that people? Is that just politicians or is that people? And are these the people who are most likely to represent us? Because they do actually represent how we are as well. The best response is not to rail and rant at the TV or computer screen or smartphone screen or the radio, but to take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask, are we this way? Are we honest? Are we consistent? Do we have integrity? Are we providing things honest in the sight of all men? Is our yes, yes, and our no, no? And do we regard, like Jesus tells us to, anything more than this or beyond this as coming from the evil one? That's where our attentions should be focused and trying to encourage others by our example to do likewise. We get that right as the American people, and we will have better representation because the type of people who will run will know it's a losing proposition to be two-faced, to talk out of both sides of their mouth. We don't like that. In fact, we will favor and reward those who don't do that, who are rather more to the point and consistent and honest. But lest we forget, do note that even Trump winning all the primaries and winning the nomination to be the Republican Party's candidate in the 2024 presidential election is not all there is to it. A press release to consider from Ken Paxton, Attorney General of Texas, reminds us that the Supreme Court is going to review President Trump's ballot eligibility case. The state that I and my family currently reside in, the state of Colorado, our Supreme Court in this state has very disruptively said, and I think very mistakenly said, that Trump cannot appear on the ballot in 2024 because of the 14th Amendment, because he's guilty, he's not been found guilty, but they say he's guilty of being an insurrectionist. And now this needs to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and what they'll do with it, we're not sure. But Ken Paxton, Attorney General of Texas, has filed an amicus brief with 26 other states. That is the majority. That's 27 out of 50 states arguing that the Colorado Supreme Court erred and that the U.S. Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, should overrule the Colorado Supreme Court. What will come of that here in the next few weeks? We expect it's not clear. We don't know. It could be that this gets kicked back to the states and the states individually decide. Well, that's a concerning precedent to set for how we will select who the president is. 
It could also be that this is decided at a federal level, and that sets a precedent for this being decided at a federal level. This is a mess, but then that's preferable to the Democrats compared with Trump being president again. They're doing a very similar thing to what they did in 2016, just trying to sludge his path so that he can't become president. Or if he does, he'll have so much baggage that he won't be able to do anything with the position. They're trying to weaken him so that he does not get elected. Or if he does get elected, he's so weak that he's kind of like Ahaziah, having fallen through the roof or the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, lying sick. Yes, you're king. Yes, you're president, but you're so bedbound. You're just lying there. You're not doing much except for inquiring, how long do you got? How bad is it, Doc? That is the goal. That is what the Democrats in the state of Colorado and many other places, many other states and localities in the U.S. are trying to accomplish. And not just any response will do. If you say, well, let's just pick somebody who isn't going to be this controversial or so inflammatory for the Democrats, well, then that is a precedent that you're setting as well that is very dangerous. To where all they have to do to control who it is that you nominate is raise a big stink and hold a judicial, legislative, bureaucratic gun to the head of our country. That's all they have to do. And then you pick somebody else. That's not a precedent you want to set. We probably don't want this being decided by state Supreme Courts on a regular basis. They can just call somebody an insurrectionist and then all of a sudden they're ineligible to run. But really what it was is that they made the establishment of both parties very upset, very nervous. If that's all it takes to keep somebody from being eligible to run again, well, then I guess we don't have a democracy. You might as well just stop with the pretense and you might as well just admit that this is an oligarchy straight up in due time an oligarchy will give way to a dictatorship one will emerge just like this relatively small concentration of wealth and power has decided that they're really the ones who have to make all the decisions even for who we can vote for even though that's not the system we've had Perhaps this is like we talked about in our previous episode, us imitating the fall of the Roman Republic or the death of the Republic and the emergence of the Roman Empire. Maybe that's what we're imitating, that trajectory. And if so, then in due time, the patrician class will find themselves replaced or overshadowed or dominated by an especially intelligent and effective dictator. And that man will be dictator for life because it's just too disruptive. There's too much writing on who is in this position for us to just be changing every four years who it is, in which case they'll go along with it at that point, but they'll have no choice. They'll have 
have their arm twisted, and we'll just have an empire. We'll have emperors again, like they did in Roman days. We're not an empire right now. We are a republic, madam, if you can keep it, but maybe the answer is to the second part of that reply from Ben Franklin. We can't keep it. Maybe a better way to look at it is you're a republic, madam, for as long as you can keep it, and how much longer will that be? We'll see. But moving on, something else happened yesterday or was part of the day, and that was that we observed Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the U.S. And as a general rule, I think of MLK Jr. as having been a very flawed man who did some good things. His having championed a nonviolent civil rights movement, I've generally thought in my life was a very, very good thing. I've never been concerned that we have a day dedicated to honoring his memory. It's always bothered me that the FBI related to him behind the scenes the way that they did. They were trying to surveil him and blackmail him. They tapped his phones. They tracked his movements. They found out about his extramarital affairs and then privately, quietly sent letters to him, letting him know that he was found out and that he should probably kill himself. And oh, by the way, the FBI just recently posted to X some attempt at a tribute praising the legacy of MLK Jr. The community notes were pretty savage, as you might expect, pointing out that the FBI, when MLK Jr. was alive, did incredible harm to him. So this is laughable that you guys are honoring him, given how you related to him when he was alive. And what was I just saying about you talk one way, you act one way when the needs of the moment are such and such, and then you get what you want. And then in the next moment, you're saying a very, very different thing because the needs of the moment have changed. The moment has changed and your needs have changed. And now you just say whatever it is next to try and accomplish your next objective. But there's a lack of authenticity. There's a lack of integrity and honesty to that. But I look at things like that, dynamics like that, and I think, wow, Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> had, a rough, had a rough time of it. And then he was assassinated. And then it seems as though the civil rights movement never really recovered. It took on a hard edge and more of the violent, impatient, radical element among African-Americans had a foothold because he had advocated nonviolence and he had been assassinated, they said, see, it doesn't work, so you should get with our program. And now they were angry at his having been killed, but they wanted violence to accomplish their objectives before that. An interesting quote from MLK Jr. came to my attention yesterday by way of Facebook and the Reformed Conservative group that I am a moderator for. And I also sit on uh, the board of directors for the Reformed Conservative as well as an organization. But a post was made yesterday by one of the other members of this group, the Reformed Conservative. This quote from Martin Luther King Jr. from 1966 was from an acceptance speech as he was receiving the Margaret Sanger Award, Margaret Sanger being the founder of Planned Parenthood. Now, what he said in this quote, we'll touch on in just a moment, but the fact that MLK Jr. received 
the Margaret Sanger Award in 1966. In fact, the first year that the award was bestowed on anyone. It was bestowed on four men. MLK Jr. was one of those four men. And he accepted the award. That fact is jarring. That dramatically changes the way that I think about MLK Jr. It's not because he was a black minister that I have a lower opinion of him. In fact, I had a high opinion of him that he was a black minister who called for a nonviolent civil rights movement that black Americans would be treated with respect and dignity, equal protection of the laws. All of that I hardly endorse and affirm as good. But Regardless his skin color, regardless of whether he would be a member of the clergy or a layperson, the fact that he would accept an award from Planned Parenthood, that he would accept the Margaret Sanger Award the first year that it was offered, that causes me to lose quite a lot of respect for MLK Jr. Quite a lot. And it throws into question everything that he was about in my book. From the acceptance speech, because he actually did not receive the award in person, but it was given, according to Planned Parenthood, Gulf Coast Incorporated's website, he received the award, quote, for his courageous resistance to bigotry and his lifelong dedication to the advancement of social justice and human dignity, end quote. His wife accepted the award on his behalf and delivered a speech that he had written, But in part, here is what Mrs. Coretta Scott King had to say when she accepted the award on his behalf. Before reading his speech, she said, I am proud tonight to say a word in behalf of your mentor and the person who symbolizes the ideas of this organization, Margaret Sanger, because of her dedication, her deep convictions, and for her suffering for what she believed in, I would like to say that I am proud to be a woman tonight, end quote. Here is Planned Parenthood's reprinting of Dr. King's acceptance speech as read by his wife. Recently, the press has been filled with reports of sightings of flying saucers. While we need not give credence to these stories, they allow our imagination to speculate on how visitors from outer space would judge us. I'm afraid they would be stupefied at our conduct. They would observe that for death planning, we spend billions to create engines and strategies for war. They would also observe that we spend millions to prevent death by disease and other causes. Finally, they would observe that we spend paltry sums for population planning, even though its spontaneous growth is an urgent threat to life on our planet. Our visitors from outer space would be forgiven if they reported home that our planet is inhabited by a race of insane men whose future is bleak and uncertain. There is no human circumstance more tragic than the persisting existence of a harmful condition for which a remedy is readily available. Family planning to relate population to world resources is possible, practical, and necessary. Unlike plagues of the Dark Ages or contemporary diseases we do not yet understand, the modern plague of overpopulation is soluble by means we have discovered and with resources we possess. What is lacking is not sufficient knowledge of the solution, but universal consciousness of the gravity of the problem and education of the billions who are its victims. It is easier for a Negro to understand a social paradox because he has lived so long with evils that could be eradicated but were perpetuated by indifference or ignorance. The Negro finally had to devise unique methods to deal with this problem. 
And perhaps the measure of success he is realizing can be an inspiration to others coping with tenacious social problems. In our struggle for equality, we were confronted with the reality that many millions of people were essentially ignorant of our conditions or refused to face unpleasant truths. The hardcore bigot was merely one of our adversaries. The millions who were blind to our plight had to be compelled to face the social evil their indifference permitted to flourish. After centuries of relative silence and enforced acceptance, we adapted a technique of exposing the problem by direct and dramatic methods. We had confidence that when we awakened the nation to the immorality and evil of inequality, there would be an upsurge of conscience followed by remedial action. We knew that there were solutions and that the majority of the nation were ready for them. Yet we also knew that the existence of solutions would not automatically operate to alter conditions. We had to organize not only arguments, but people in the millions for action. Finally, we had to be prepared to accept all the consequences involved in dramatizing our grievances in the unique style we had devised. There's a striking kinship between our movement and Margaret Sanger's early efforts. She, like we, saw the horrifying conditions of ghetto life. Like we, she knew that all of society is poisoned by cancerous slums. Like we, she was a direct actionist, a nonviolent resistor. She was willing to accept scorn and abuse until the truth she saw was revealed to the millions. At the turn of the century, she went into the slums and set up a birth control clinic, and for this deed she went to jail because she was violating an unjust law. Yet the years have justified her actions. She launched a movement which is obeying a higher law to preserve human life under humane conditions. Margaret Sanger had to commit what was then called a crime— in order to enrich humanity, and today we honor her courage and vision, for without them there would have been no beginning. Our sure beginning in the struggle for equality by nonviolent direct action may not have been so resolute without the tradition established by Margaret Sanger and people like her. Negroes have no mere academic or ordinary interest in family planning. They have a special and urgent concern. Recently, the subject of Negro family life has received extensive attention. Unfortunately, studies have overemphasized the problem of the Negro male ego and almost entirely ignored the most serious element, Negro migration. During the past half century, Negroes have migrated on a massive scale, transplanting millions from rural communities to crammed urban ghettos. In their migration, as with all migrants, they carried with them the folkways of the countryside into an inhospitable city slum. The size of family that may have been appropriate and tolerable on a manually cultivated farm was carried over to the jammed streets of the ghetto. In all respects, Negroes were atomized, neglected, and discriminated against. Yet the worst omission was the absence of institutions to acclimate them to their new environment. Margaret Sanger, who offered an important institutional remedy, was unfortunately ignored by social and political leaders in this period. In consequence, Negro folkways in family size persisted. The problem was compounded when unrestrained exploitation and discrimination accented the bewilderment of the newcomer and high rates of illegitimacy and fragile family relationships resulted. For the Negro, therefore... Intelligent guides of family planning are a profoundly important ingredient in his quest for security and a decent life. There are mountainous obstacles still separating Negroes from a normal existence, yet one element in stabilizing his life would be an understanding of and easy access to the means to develop a family related in size to his community environment and to the income potential he can command. Now, we'll just stop right there. That's not the end of the speech, but that's quite enough of a speech for you to get the idea that Martin Luther King Jr. endorsed heartily, enthusiastically, Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood setting up in black ghettos in American cities and said, because there's no room for 
black children, they need to have access to the means to prevent black children from being raised in these ghettos because there's not the income earning capacity or the room. Negroes, in order to have a good life, need to be able to prevent their own reproduction. Or, and maybe this wasn't known to him, as we know in hindsight, to be able to terminate pregnancy, to terminate the life of their own children so that they can focus on acclimating, so they can focus on pursuing a career, so they can focus on education. Martin Luther King Jr. is complicit in the mass murder of black Americans by way of abortion. And yet yesterday was his day in America. He has the reputation for being this minister of the gospel and this minister of social justice and this minister of racial justice in America. But he sinned greatly. And he was speaking more as a false prophet than a man of God when he directed his wife to accept the award, the Margaret Sanger Award in 1966. Shame on him. And shame on any so-called minister like him. And yet, you can't say that. You're not supposed to say that because all we can see is race. Ironically, with his I have a dream speech, if you change the lens from assessing him based on race to assessing him based on the content of his character in a moment like this or with his numerous womanizing affairs, if you change the lens to talking about the content of his character, then people hide behind race. And they say, you're not supposed to talk about the content of his character. You're only supposed to talk about his race. Well, that's just opposite what it is he said in his most famous speeches, I have a dream speech. So apparently it was just that. It was just a dream. And you can pinch yourself now because we're not dreaming anymore. And yet all the same, it's a very sad thing that this has been presented as to the benefit of women, to the benefit of racial minorities in America, that they would murder their own children. It is not to their benefit. In fact, we are all the worse for it. But it's radicals like Margaret Singer and their very wealthy benefactors. They're arrogant and godless, but thinking themselves godlike, entirely too bold and brazen donors and supporters who were championing Malthusian eugenics, a very Darwinian view of the created order, saying, you can't let these people reproduce like this anymore. You have to talk them into eliminating their own offspring who aren't fit to reproduce. And we'll pitch it like it's a quality of life thing, but then where's the quality of life for this child you've just aborted? There's no quality of life for them. Where's the quality of life for the young people who, between abortion and contraception and no-fault divorce and the welfare state, stopped being part of functional intact families and the whole business was dismissed as just a natural effect of migrating from the rural parts of America to the cities? That's just the fault of the white man too. That's just the fault of white America too that we have these ghettos in the cities that are overcrowded, too little attended to, picked on, counted out. We've got a solution. Let's put Planned Parenthood facilities. Let's put birth control and then subsequently abortion control facilities in those communities. That's how we'll attend to them. What contempt, not just for man made in the image of God, but for the God in whose image man was made. 
This was not faithful, and this was not true, and it was not good. But then this is what happens when only certain types of contribution from so-called Christian ministers and the church are welcome. Only contributions which affirm the status quo need apply. By no means is Martin Luther King Jr. the final word on African-American ministers speaking into this issue or any of the other issues that concern black Americans, especially concern America as a whole, Americans of every color. And yet MLK Jr. is the one who has a day dedicated to him. And that day was yesterday. Back to the present, though. Harris Rigby at Not the Bee has a post from December 5th. No joke, an 11-year-old girl was assigned the same bed as a trans-identifying student on an overnight school trip. Not only is this happening in the U.S., this is happening in the state of Colorado. In fact, this story in particular comes from the state of Colorado. This is Jefferson County School District of Colorado, which is a mere hour and a half from where I live. Harris Rigby writes, Welcome to the world of tolerance, niceness, inclusion, and equity. This very tolerant and inclusive school district in Colorado decided that they would throw all the rules of society out the window because hashtag progress. Yes, a little girl was assigned by the Jefferson County School District of Colorado to sleep in the same bed as a boy who identifies as a girl on a cross-country school trip. According to the parents, the school hid all of this from the parents of the young girl, mom and dad, don't need to know that a boy is sleeping in the same bed as a girl because trans girls are girls, right? Here's a quote represented by Alliance Defending Freedom. Joe and Serena Wales are calling on the Colorado-based Jefferson County School Board and Jefferson County Public Schools Superintendent Tracy Dorland to clarify, quote, whether JCPS will continue this practice of intentionally withholding information about rooming accommodations from parents like the Waleses who object to their children rooming with a student of the opposite sex, regardless of the other student's gender identity. Harris Rigby continues, Sadly, the fact that this is a policy at a Colorado public school is almost the least surprising thing I've read this week. Quote, The Wales's 11-year-old daughter, who is identified in the letter as DW, was assigned to a room with three other students, according to the demand letter. Two of these students were girls from her school, and the third student was a boy who identified as a girl named in the letter as KEM, who went to a different school. DW and KEM were told that they would share a bed, and that evening, when the students were in their room together, KEM reportedly revealed to the girls that he is a boy who identifies as a girl. Quote, I felt a bit helpless, the father said. Quote, I was 2,000 miles away. My daughter is scared in a bathroom trying to get herself out of a situation. It was a frustrating experience, and I just really felt like it was not a situation my daughter should be put in, end quote. Yeah, you think? And oh, by the way, I haven't mentioned this lately. I wrote a book and published it at the very tail end of 2020 titled, And This Is Why We Homeschool. You can get your copy today. You can find it online, most places where books are sold. And this is why we homeschool. And this is why we homeschool. But then this too can be twisted and manipulated and propagandized. This can be spun and it is spun by the left as not just okay, but imperative. And if you object, you're the problem. In fact, we're all about tolerance right up until the moment that you object, in which case we're going to say you need to get the hell out. And how dare you? And shut up. 
We want to hear what everybody has to say except for you if you object to this because this isn't about the particular issue. This is about a revolution that bears no resemblance at all to what God says is good and true. How it started is you get so-called ministers preaching a so-called social gospel, which is all about progress, but it's liberal theology. And this is why J. Gresham Machen said that liberal Christianity is a false gospel. It's a different religion. It's a different gospel. It's not just one of many ways to interpret the biblical text and the Christian life, and we're all Christian brothers and sisters. No, J. Gresham Machen said liberal Christianity is not Christianity because liberal Christianity ultimately leads up to situations like this, where you say this is necessary. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. How dare you object? How dare you have any notion of sexual morality or propriety or parents' rights or good and evil? In fact, let's exchange good for evil and bitter for sweet. And what's that about? Let him be accursed who does such things? Nah, get out of here, bigot. This too is said to be about somehow championing the well-being of children and men and women are imposing their own delusions and their own perversions on children. And the claim is being made that they can be experts in what's best for your children. But if you as a parent say, absolutely not, and this is evil what you're doing, you're the problem. And in some Democrat-controlled, Democrat-run states, they have already said, They will take your child away if you are the kind of parent who says, absolutely not. If your child comes home from some public school event or class or after school program, and they say, I identify as a girl, but I'm actually a boy. I identify as a boy, but I'm actually a girl. If you as the parent say, absolutely not, your children will be taken away from you because you are abusing them. See, that's the other side of the coin to claiming that this is a basic human right for children to be sexual. If that's the case, well, then you have no grounds for objecting when the school on a cross-country trip puts your 11-year-old daughter with an 11-year-old boy in the same bed because so what if the boy gets frisky with your daughter? I mean, for one thing, you can't even get to that part of the conversation because they're demanding that you affirm the girlhood of this little boy. But then suppose they do get sexually active, whether it's a boy or it's a girl, That's a good thing. That's a basic human right of the children involved here. And how dare you confuse the children? You're the one who's confusing these children if you say that's immoral and that's evil and that's wicked. At the outset, the claim was made that American public education was going to make America competitive with other developed nations like Germany and France. At the outset, the claim was we need to keep up with them when it comes to producing engineers and chemists. We need to be competitive in the global economy. And so we need to focus more on practical skills like math, for instance, physical sciences, for instance. We are about as far away from that as you can possibly get. And it has everything to do with the demand that the progressives made that the liberal Christians, so-called, but not really Christians, made of the government schools, that they would be neutral with regards to Christianity. Increasingly, they're hostile to Christianity because Christianity is painted as repressive, intolerant, and getting in the way of the next stage of human evolution. 
the next stage of human evolution is very much along the lines of what Martin Luther King Jr. was saying. And that is to say, we need to find an all-of-the-above approach to reducing Earth's population, reducing the number of people being born. We'll do that in part by destroying the means by which young people desire to have families, to get married, have children, raise those children together. Let's destroy their conception of themselves as male and female. Let's destroy their conception of marriage as being the only legitimate context in which sexuality should be expressed. Let's encourage them, ironically, counterintuitively, to be sexually active at as young an age as they possibly can be. But then let's also turn right around and say, when they are sexually active, they should be on birth control. And if they're not on birth control and they get pregnant anyways, they should get an abortion. And oh, by the way, an easy way to prevent pregnancy in the first place is to encourage them to be homosexuals or to be transgendered and to have their sexual organs removed. And if you were forcing this instead of talking them into it and trying to get them to think that it's their own idea, this would be one of the most heinous, evil, corrupt, villainous schemes in human history. But if you talk them into thinking this was their own idea, well then, this is emancipation. Never mind that you've brainwashed them. Never mind that you've just induced them through something approaching mind control into mutilating themselves and throwing their lives away and joining you in rebellion against a holy and righteous God who did not make them for this, and you know it. But let's get back to talking about Planned Parenthood for a moment, shall we? Live Action Org on Instagram has a post, which you can find in the description for this podcast episode, highlighting several tweets by Lila Rose, the lovely Lila Grace Rose, where she writes, and I quote, Planned Parenthood believes children, quote, no matter what age, all caps, are, quote, entitled to sexual pleasure, end quote. This ideology is about to be forced into the education systems of 79 African, Caribbean, and Pacific nations, impacting over 2 billion people under international law. Sexuality and sexual pleasure are important parts of human being for everyone, no matter what age, no matter if you're married or not, and no matter if you want to have children or not. The Samoa Treaty, Lila Rose continues, is a trade agreement between the EU and African, Caribbean, and Pacific nations that creates a legal framework the nations must abide by for the next 20 years. If signed, each nation will be required to adopt abortion and sexual ideology into their laws. The treaty requires nations to provide, quote, sexual and reproductive health commodities and services, end quote. This involves implementing programs recommended by UNESCO's International Technical Guidance on Sexual Education, including materials created by Planned Parenthood. These programs, quote, seek to increase awareness about young people's sexual rights, end quote, quote, no matter what age, end quote, children will be taught about abortion, masturbation, sodomy, bestiality, and gender ideology. Here's a screenshot that she's got included in her tweet. Young people's early encounters of sexual pleasure are very important since they can shape the way they experience and express their sexuality in the future. Ensuring that all young people are entitled to sexual pleasure and how to experience different forms of sexual pleasure is important for their health and well-being. Here we find more screenshots in the post from Live Action Org of a textbook or a manual, I should say, with the cover title 
Comprehensive Sexuality Education CSE for out-of-school young people in Zimbabwe. Here are some quotes highlighted and some bullet point items. Sexual behaviors, kissing, touching, hugging, petting, oral sex, including conolingus, mouth to vulva, vagina, and or clitoris, and filetio, mouth to penis, are acceptable in some cultures. Masturbation, manual manipulation of genitals for sexual gratification. Sodomy, anal or copulation-like act between males. Voyeurism, sexual pleasure or excitement from observing other, undressing, making love, kissing, petting, or masturbating. Exhibitionism, sexual pleasure from exposing one's genitals. Gerontosexuality, sexual preference from elderly by a young person. Pederasty, sexual pleasure from young boys. Bestiality, sexual pleasure from animals. Necrophilia, sexual pleasure from corpses. Urophilia, sexual pleasure from urine. Coprophilia, sexual pleasure from filth such as feces, dirt, or soiled underwear. Sadism, sexual pleasure from inflicting pain on another person. Masochism, sexual pleasure from receiving pain from another person. Regional module for teacher training on comprehensive sexual education for East and Southern Africa. Here's a quote from page 82. Gender identity, knowing whether one is male, female, neither, or somewhere in between. That's how they define gender identity. This next from the IPPF. From choice, a world of possibilities. Exclaim, Young People's Guide to Sexual Rights, an IPPF declaration. Liberalization of abortion laws to enable all young women to access safe abortion care, legal frameworks that recognize same-sex marriages or unions and allow same-sex couples or individuals to adopt children. Interesting. Interesting that they have those things together as part of their agenda. Back to Lila Rose. She writes, many ACP nations see this treaty as a necessary economic move that will provide millions in funding from the EU, but some have rejected it as an, quote, affront to their cultural values, end quote, and undermining their sovereignty. 35 nations have refused to sign so far, and good for them. If the EU can convince two-thirds of the ACP nations to sign by January 1st, 2024, this sexual ideology will be internationally enforced on over 2 billion people. This is an assault on children, human rights, and families, and we have a responsibility to stand against it. I quite agree. But that is to say, if it starts with some seemingly pious-sounding, we have to do this for the dignity of black Americans so they can get ahead, so they can focus on being able to fit into the inner-city ghettos they've moved to from rural America. And this is really social justice. If it starts with a minister getting up and accepting a Margaret Sanger Award in 1966, it definitely doesn't end there. In fact, if it starts here in the U.S. and we're saying, well, this is our culture— it definitely doesn't end there because next thing you know, it's exported. And next thing you know, just like we were trying to keep up with the Germans and the French, as far as industrialization went, as far as a modern economy went, just like we overhauled higher education and then K through 12 instruction to imitate the Germans, that is to say, to imitate the Prussians, well, so also we've swapped back and forth the ideas of Margaret Sanger to the point that maybe just maybe, we're importing en masse migrants from all over the world, especially Latin America, Central and South America, to replace the people who are not being born to American citizens. And maybe just maybe it's not lost on the folks who ensure the border stays porous, that when these people move here, if they do assimilate, if they do adopt our culture and our way of thinking, they also will be 
accessing as much as they can our public schools where their children will be taught, if they have children, to do all the things that make them sterile as well. They'll depopulate their own home countries, but they'll come here and they'll repopulate us just like black Americans moving to the ghettos from the rural parts of America. We're told, here's a clinic to help you not get pregnant, or here's a clinic to help you deal with this unwanted pregnancy. And the migrants who move here, as they do likewise, they will also sterilize themselves. They will also contribute to decreasing the world's overall population, which these people have convinced themselves and one another is really for the best. They've convinced themselves that this is actually for the good of humanity, but it's not enough different from what the Nazis did. It's not enough dissimilar. We need to know that. We need to know that the social engineering from these folks, it starts with supposedly this is for your best interest and this is what you really want. But in the end, if they can't talk you into it, it's like Naboth and the vineyard he didn't want to sell to Ahab. If somebody else tries to cross-examine and push back and say, actually, this is not in your best interest, you just work bureaucratically and through regulations to remove them as an impediment, to remove them from getting between you and what you really want, which may be a vineyard today, or it might be little children tomorrow. And that increasingly plausibly looks an awful lot like the conspiracy theories about our global elites, that they love preying on little children. Oh, look at this. They're imposing on pain of economic isolation and diplomatic exclusion, they're imposing comprehensive sexual education on countries so that their young people are separated from their parents, but also sexualized at the same time. And isn't that convenient when the people doing the pushing of this curriculum and saying it must be the case for 20 years just so happen to also not face anything in the way of accountability if their names show up on flight logs for Jeffrey Epstein's plane. Not much to anything happens to them, if anything happens to them, if we even know their names, if they were accessing underage girls, for instance, for example. And who knows how underage? Who knows what we don't even know? But then we don't need to know all of that. All we really, really need to know is you didn't get this from God. You've gotten this from paganism. All we really need to know is you act as though there is no God in Israel. And when you have a problem, you sooner go to the demons or you send a messenger to ask the demons what to do next. That's all we really need to know, that you are immune to reminders that God's word says this is good and that is evil. God's word says this is true and that is false. When that does not register only all the more when you purport to be a minister of God, I say, you are not a minister of God. You are not a good person. You are doing the devil's work. And the same consequence is in store for you if you don't repent, if you don't turn away from this. The same consequence is ahead of you as befell Ahaziah in 2 Kings chapter 1. If that's what you want, or if you're as stubborn and thick-headed as he was, you send a captain of 50 and his 50 to go fetch Elijah, even though you've already gotten your answer. Fire comes down from heaven and smokes that captain and his 50 
And what do you do? You just send another. You say, be more stern next time. Be more stern than the last guy. Yeah. No. No, no, no. The same thing will happen to you. And this is just a waste of time. Really, it's futility. It's just stalling, perhaps, maybe. I don't know. But it's not going to work because you're not up against Elijah. You're not up against the people of God. You're up against God at the end of the day when you do these things, when you try to do these things, when you push these things. But speaking of not working, let's talk about an article briefly by Stephanie McNeil, published 24th October 2023 in Glamour magazine, titled Welcome to the Soft Girl Revolution, How Young Women Are Rejecting Girl Boss Culture for a Life of Leisure. Subtitle here, trying to hustle your way up the corporate ladder is so last decade, can be read, I think, in a valley girl accent without fear of being out of tune. But here we go. Here is Stephanie McNeil's opening salvo on the so-called soft girl revolution. She writes, two years ago, Mia Jones felt stuck. She had barely started her career, but she already felt incredibly burnt out. Quote, after the pandemic, I found myself working in a nine to five job that on paper appeared to be propelling my career along the prescribed societal trajectory, the path I was told I should be on, end quote. The now 24-year-old says, quote, but as each day passed, I felt like I was drifting further away from my true self and my creative aspirations, end quote. Jones decided to express her feelings as many young women these days do in a TikTok rant, which soon went viral. Quote, I don't want to be a girl boss. I don't want to hustle. I simply want to live my life slowly and lay in a bed of moss with my lover and enjoy the rest of my existence reading books and creating art and loving the people in my life, end quote, she said. Jones isn't alone. For many Gen Z women who have entered the workforce during the past few years, their greatest dream increasingly is to have the chance to achieve nothing, at least by traditional capitalist standards. Welcome to the world of the soft girl, the lifestyle choice that many young women are now holding up as an ideal. The soft girl doesn't value the grind or getting ahead. She prioritizes slow living. Her days are filled with a nearly obsessive focus on self-care, from making the perfect morning smoothie to tending to her skin and trading in hardcore hit workouts for leisurely cozy cardio. Long-term, the soft girl dreams of making dinner for her husband and, if she's got them, staying at home with her kids. She's not interested in being promoted or founding her own company. She's in touch with her feminine energy, her menstrual cycle, and her moods. Quote, soft life is having time, space, and protection to heal the feminine. End quote wrote one devotee in a TikTok video. Quote, soft life is romanticizing every moment of your day. Soft life is releasing the compulsion to produce and accomplish, end quote. In other words, to be a soft girl is to radically reject the idea of being a girl boss, the bastion of feminine achievement that was an ideal during the tech boom of the late 2000s and 2010s. Now, we'll stop right here. We'll pause. We won't stop entirely, but we'll pause. And let's appreciate that you can call soft girl these women who are disillusioned, disenchanted with girl boss culture and the former, very recent, but now out of fashion trend in feminine empowerment, women's empowerment. You can call it being a soft girl. Maybe what it actually is, is just being feminine, embracing their femininity. There was something 
not very feminine, something actually very masculine about the demand that was placed on young ladies to say to young men, anything you can do, I can do better and I'll prove it. And I have to make not just as much money as you, but I have to make more money. And I have to not just be your peer. I have to not just be your coworker. I have to be your boss. There's something unfeminine. There's something manly about that. But then in its own way, that's a rejection of the value of being feminine. And it would seem to me that these so-called soft girl revolutionaries are not revolutionizing anything. If anything, they're trying to have a revival, even in their own personal lives, of traditional femininity. If they aspire to someday cooking dinner for their husband who is going off to work and being the boss and then coming home and wanting to have a meal together with them and any kids they may have, that's not the latest trend. That's historically what's been successful for the human race when women pursue that, when women embrace that, and when they glory in that role in their families, in their community, in their nation. What's being presented here in Glamour Magazine as a revolution really should be seen more as a reform project, as in these young ladies are trying to reform themselves by embracing traditional femininity. At least that's what I'm hearing. They were told that for them to be happy, they had to follow their dreams. And then they start following their dreams and they realize these aren't actually my dreams. Somebody told me that these were my dreams, but I don't remember even wanting this of my own accord. I think vicariously, the previous generation's revolutionaries wanted me to accomplish these things so that they could feel validated. And maybe that's not good enough. That's not a good enough reason for me to keep on this track. If that's going to be a trend for Gen Z, and then in our previous episode, we were talking about Gen Z, perhaps possibly going back to church and that being another TikTok trend that you have a whole lot of Gen Z saying, this last few years has been so rough. I had to turn to religion. I had to turn to God. I went back to church. I started going to church for the first time in my life. I started praying for the first time in my life. If all of these things go together, we may just be really, really surprised by how Gen Z wants to orient their lives in relation to what in our day is seen as the wrong side of history, but which honestly, if you survey history, is always and in all times and in all places and in all cultures, generally speaking, exactly the right side of history. This is what endures. If you want to talk about survival of the fittest and Darwin and all the rest, survival of the fittest thinking would place special priority on the tradition of men being masculine and women being feminine and marriage being a very blessed arrangement that's good for both men and women. And it's definitely good for children to be raised in a home. Statistics bear this out. They always have to be raised in a home where both the father and the mother love one another and love those children together, giving them examples, giving them structure, giving them affection, being kind to them, but also being protective and providing for them and teaching them and modeling for them what it means for a man to be masculine, what it means for a woman to be feminine. Survival of the fittest type thinking would have you saying we're better together and we're better when we're together in distinct ways as God has designed us because he knew what he was doing when he designed us. The previous generation's revolution and them wanting to self-actualize even down through the generations by 
imposing their rejection and their rebellion on our goals in life, on our way of thinking about ourselves, that is the outlier and that is on the wrong side of history. And maybe, just maybe, this piece in Glamour Magazine by Stephanie Neal is beginning to appreciate that. But back to McNeil's piece from October. She writes, Women who strove to be girl bosses went to bed late and got up early to sweat it out at Barry's or SoulCycle. They idolized female business leaders like Sheryl Sandberg and Marissa Meyer, who famously worked from her hospital bed after she delivered twins. They sipped cocktails, among other professionals, at Audrey Gelman's The Wing, slathered on as much balm.com as their face could handle from Emily Weiss's Glossier, pre-ordered the Sofia Amoruso's Biz Advice book, literally called Girl Boss, while listening to Hillary Clinton speak about breaking the glass ceiling. They took up space. They leaned in. They asked for more. It's now 2023, and many girl bosses have fallen from grace. Clinton lost the presidential race to Donald Trump. Big tech is in chaos, and many people have been rewarded for their years of grinding by being unceremoniously laid off. The wing was forced to close amid numerous news reports of racism and toxicity, and Gelman now runs a corner store full of $100 candles in Brooklyn. The next generation of women have watched all of this unfold, observed our burnout and our late nights, our stress fractures and our egg freezing and said, no thanks. What about if we just didn't try so hard? Now, let's stop right there. What if we just didn't try so hard needs to be qualified? What are you trying so hard to accomplish and why? That makes all the difference between a problem and a purpose. What these Gen Z soft girls, so-called, are seeing is a problem where you're insisting this is your purpose. They're not buying it. They're not buying that that is actually being so purposeful. In fact, there are a lot of indications that instead of this being a choice you get to make, that you have the privilege of getting to make, more and more it's the only choice you're allowed to make, and that is not liberation. That is not empowerment. As a matter of fact, that may have quite a lot of resemblance to the moral imperative that Martin Luther King Jr. was expressing in his written speech that his wife delivered to accept the Margaret Sanger Award in 1966. That is to say, the experts, the liberal theologians and pastors, the progressives, the materialists said, we can't let the normal man and woman keep on reproducing like they have been. The earth is filled up and it's time to scale back. But then Margaret Sanger being just a few short months from the end of her life in 1966, when the first Margaret Sangers were awarded to MLK and LBJ, by the way, he was one of the other of the first four recipients of her award from Planned Parenthood. When Margaret Sanger was on her deathbed, she had behind her decades of working closely with eugenicists in the West. And it was only after the Nazi death camps revealed how far the eugenicists might be willing to go in curbing the wrong sort of people reproducing and filling up the earth that eugenics got a bad name. And in our day, you have to understand that all those same attitudes, all those same ways of thinking about the common man, which are held in common by the elite ruling class 
of the West and of the world, all those same attitudes have changed their talking points. They've rebranded. Public relations professionals have gotten very, very good at pitching this, advertising it like it's your idea in a very similar way to how these girl bosses in Gen Z had it pitched to them like it was their idea. They have repackaged eugenics as empowerment. But what it really boils down to is they want you to not get married and have children. If you get married, young lady, well, you're off the market for these rich playboys who've inherited all this vast fortune, all of this money. You're off the market for them if you're married or you're less on the market. It's less likely you're going to just go with them and be their good times whenever they please. If you're in the workforce, and especially if you work for their company, it's a lot easier. If you're a professional and they can flatter this sense of empowerment through sexual immorality, then you're easy. If you don't want the child that results from them fooling around with you, them using you, them gratifying themselves on you and with you and in you, well then, that's where abortion comes in. And isn't it convenient that they don't have to be responsible for the child if they just offer to pay for the abortion? The eugenicists have decided that marriage is an impediment to their own gratification of themselves. When it comes to access to the sexual marketplace, it's very convenient to convince generations of young ladies that they want to say yes to the richest, most handsome, most confident, most powerful man who makes an advance on them next. That's empowerment. That's the definition of empowerment that's been given to them. But also, men getting married gets in the way of the gratification of these very, very wealthy elites. Men getting married means they may not be quite as dedicated to their job, or they may not be willing to just say yes whenever the man at the very, very top in the elite ranks of the masters of humanity, the econs, as they see themselves, they're the behavioral economists, you're just a human, want the typical man to not balance the concerns of raising a family, having a wife, taking care of his wife, taking care of his kids with the demands of the corporation, which ultimately benefit the very, very wealthy eugenicist most. And it's set up to benefit him most. Of course, it benefits him most for the young man to not get married, to be married to his job, to be married to his work, to be married to his career, and to see that as his purpose. If he's taking time off to spend time with his wife, if he's taking time off to spend time with his children, he's taking his eye off the ball. And that's a problem for the folks who don't just want less people taking up space in the world, getting in their way. They also want the people who are here working for their companies, doing their bidding to be less distracted, to have less divided attention when it comes to pursuing the objectives of the elite ruling class. If they must, they'll outsource the jobs. They don't want to do that, but they may. And if they can, when they can, they'll port over to AI what was being done by a person who was highly trained and who was skilled labor, who was an expert. If we can make the expert into a computer, we only have to pay for the computer one time. We don't have to keep paying that computer 
We don't have to worry about that computer quitting and going to work for our competition. And so it's very convenient to apply all this pressure and to keep the pressure on. And if the young ladies, for instance, give up on this idea and they embrace being feminine, and if they want to be married and they want to have children, and they're deciding that now in their 20s, their late teens and their early 20s, that maybe this girl boss thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's an ugly, cold corporate world that I've been thrown into, and I don't like it. I don't like when HR, with whom I've had no interaction to this point in the time at my company, decides they want to have a conference call to let me know I'm being let go. Because somebody looked at a spreadsheet somewhere and didn't think I was contributing. I wasn't reaching my benchmarks and my KPIs. So now they're letting me go, even though I went to college for this. I said no to a young man who asked to marry me for this job. My boss has been telling me, like the young lady who was just recently going viral for the video of her being laid off from Cloudflare. My boss, she says, has been saying nothing but positive things about my performance. What am I being fired for? And the HR people who are firing her can't tell her or they won't tell her. Maybe they don't even know. They just have a list of names to let go. And then young ladies see that and they say, wow, that's awful. That's not at all what was presented. That's not at all what was portrayed by my guidance counselor or by my parents or on TV or in the movies or in the books that I was reading or in the magazines like Glamour that I was reading. That's not what I wanted. I want more commitment than that. Well, it sounds like you want marriage then. It sounds like you want marriage to a man who believes that his oath to you in marriage is sacred and he's not going to break that and he's not going to abandon you for anything. It sounds like you want marriage. And if you want a productive application of yourself that's going to endure and allow you to be very creative and allow you to be kind and nurturing, well, it sounds an awful lot like you want to have children, which, oh, by the way, at your age, historically, traditionally, that's exactly what you would be doing. And that's exactly why it is. it feels so right. It feels so natural. But then the way it's presented in the Glamour Magazine article is, what about if we just didn't try so hard? No, you're trying to do something that you were told is this great idea, but it was really a trick to get you to make yourself infertile so that you would stop having children, so that you would stop filling up the earth and subduing it, so that you would not be fruitful and multiply, so that you wouldn't get married in the first place if it could be helped. Because if you don't get married in the first place, then you're always available, either to do the bidding of the managerial class, the elite ruling class, or to be the plaything of the same people. And if you pair this together with the push, the demand, as in economic activity between countries, between nations, is being held hostage on the terms of comprehensive sexuality education being imposed on school children, the ruling class, the elites of the West, of the United States of America and also of the EU, are insisting that you say nothing about the Jeffrey Epstein flight logs and also that you commit to, you covenant with them to 20 years of their children being entitled to sexual pleasure. And that's a direct quote from Planned Parenthood and their literature and their resources. 
Maybe this isn't about Planned Parenthood. Maybe this is about sexual deviance. Maybe this is about neo-paganism. Maybe this is about you getting your doctrine from demons and then even trying to sprinkle in a little bit of God talk to make it sound like you're an angel of light or this came from an angel of light, but even the devil presents himself as an angel of light. What if we just didn't try so hard sounds an awful lot like a backhand from somebody who is not quite ready to admit that they also got it wrong. No, how about try really hard to do what it is that you were created to do? And if you're a woman, how about you try to be feminine or stop trying so hard to not be feminine and stop trying so hard to avoid getting married to one person of the opposite gender, settling down, having children with them, raising those children together. And oh, by the way, while you're at it, because you're going to need some help and statistics, thanks to Mary Epperstadt for writing How the West Really Lost God, the stats bear this out. When you get married and you have kids, statistically, you are far more likely to get back to church and especially to go to a church where they're going to give you helpful support, helpful advice. Forget Planned Parenthood. Go to church. You're pregnant. You're scared. You don't know what you would do trying to take care of a child, raise a child. Find a church that believes that the Bible is God's inspired word, inerrant and infallible, and ask them, what should I do? I have sinned, perhaps, and I repent. I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. What should I do? And a church worth its salt that has not lost its savor will be kind and compassionate And yes, you know what? If you're not married, they will try to help you to find a husband, young ladies, because that's what Paul says. Young widows or those who are young and unmarried should get married. Every woman should have her own husband, that every man should have his own wife. The way it's been advertised from the propagandists who descend from and were adjacent to Margaret Sanger, you would think that the Bible is anti-sex, anti-woman, anti-freedom, oppressive. No, 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 no. You know what's oppressive is being a slave to sin, especially when sin leads to death and loving death, but not realizing until it's too late that you're actually headed for destruction because of the choices you made and because of the lies and the deceit that other people talked you into thinking were what it's all about. There's far more to this article in Glamour Magazine. We're not going to read it. We don't have time to read the rest of it right now, except I want to read the very last paragraph, these should be always in all articles, the last words of the author to leave you with the impression that they wanted to create the whole time, they were building up to the whole time. There's quite a lot between what I have read to this point and what I'm about to read at the very last. But here is the last paragraph with quotes. To me, a soft life is akin to getting out of the rat race to putting yourself first over hustling or some unattainable idea of success that continues to leave you unfulfilled. A soft life doesn't mean not working or just giving up on accomplishing things. For me, it's about reprioritizing your life and your work around your own peace, contentment, and fulfillment whenever and wherever possible, end quote. Who is being quoted here? Well, it's Jones. Jones, the gal referred to at the top, At the beginning of this article, Mia Jones, the one who felt stuck. Now, a word of caution, with this being the final word, what's not being addressed is 
the emptiness of being so selfish. If I am the center of my own purpose and belonging, then what happens when I don't even know who I am anymore? I have to find myself. Or I could ask God, who am I? Who did you make me to be? Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. Look it up if you haven't read it. It's an excellent read. Man needs two things to survive, purpose and belonging. Even more than he needs food and water and sleep, protection from the elements, man needs purpose and belonging. You will only find purpose and belonging in its undiluted and holistic sense in God. Because in God, you'll find that he has purposefully made you for a relationship with him, and he's made it possible in Christ for you to have right relationship with him. But he's also made you for a relationship with others. And wouldn't you know it, he knows what it takes for there to be success in relationship. He knows it far better than Glamour Magazine or any of the other such periodicals. This, in turn, brings us to our last essay to consider in this episode. Can the church still speak? And if so, will anyone listen? Author James R. Wood writes for comment.org in an article sent to me by my neighbor, Two Houses Down, J.P. Chavez, last week. Thank you again, J.P. We find, perhaps, the elephant in the room, because everything else that I have talked about to this point in this episode perhaps leaves you wondering, or what? Hmm? Or what? You're highlighting all of these things to complain about, and what are we supposed to do about any of it, Garrett? You're just bringing up a whole bunch of unresolved trauma and dysfunction, and it's just going to make everybody miserable. And wouldn't you just be better off to accept that these things are none of your business? Wouldn't it be better for us to just leave it well enough alone and take things as they come? Speaking of not trying so hard, why isn't that enough for me to be a Christian husband, a Christian father, to focus on just loving my own wife and loving my own children? Loving my own husband, ladies, loving your own children, that's a great thing. But men, men need to stop being so effeminate and so passive. Part of what makes it possible for the wife to stay at home and tend to the children is men being engaged in the business and the welfare of the city. And when the men won't, when the men refuse to, you will find people make the decisions for your family that really your husband should be making, or they make the decisions regarding the welfare of your family by making the decisions under the auspices of making the decision for the good of humanity or for the good of the planet or for the good of the community. They start making decisions that directly impact your ability to stay home. And then maybe the husband gets a little concerned, like, oh, wait a second, how did we get to this point? They start making decisions that directly threaten your ability to even have custody of your children. They take your kids away, and then you say, whoa, 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 wait a second. What is going on? They're talking about taking my children away because I'm teaching them biblical sexual ethics, biblical orthodoxy with regards to a doctrine of man, a doctrine of creation. What is going on? How did we get to this point? No, 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 no. Now I'm interested, but men need to be interested before there's a crisis. You don't wait until there's a crisis. That's irresponsible. You don't wait until they're knocking on the door saying they'd like to come in and do a wellness check because they see your child has been told 
homosexuality is wrong. Sex is only for marriage. Men are men. Women are women. Men cannot be women. Women cannot be men. They want to do a wellness check because they have defined that as an infringement on your child's rights. You don't wait until they're knocking on your door to start paying attention. Not if you really want to safeguard your family's well-being. But then what if you don't wait? What then? Can the church still speak? And if so, will anyone listen? James R. Wood writes, Facing a valley of dry bones, God asks the incredulous Ezekiel, can these bones still live? In our current moment, we might see the desiccated remains of the church. I use the uppercase to refer to the united body of Christians figured in scriptures, even if divided in temporal expression, and ask a similar question. Can this church still speak? Can the fractured body of believers, suppressed by the forces of the modern world, still bear witness in any authoritative way? In modern, liberal societies, the church's voice has been marginalized, diminished, and even silenced, and not by accident. This is an accomplishment of what some scholars, such as Remy Brog, refer to as the modern project, a project that centers on emancipating humans from all that purports to stand above them. Such a project demands the defanging of the church, the systematic muting of its authoritative voice. The social orders of modernity are constructed around such a free individual and seek to institutionalize the sovereignty of the human will. This means that religion and religious bodies such as the church must be stripped of any public authority, reduced to an enclosed private sphere where their voice is permitted only as it's siloed. In such a framing, religion becomes an opinion, a private practice without public bearing. Now, we'll just pause right there. Appreciate our option, friends. It is our option to ratify this or not. By default, if we are silent, we are ratifying this perspective. We are agreeing with it. We are affirming this role for the church and for we ourselves as Christians. We are agreeing that the church has no authority, that Christians have no standing when we insist on staying home on a Sunday night, even as our Christian brothers and sisters are gathering together to seek the welfare of the city. When we insist month after month after month, even though there were ample opportunities and ample announcements, we insist on always being too busy, always having something better to do with our time, even if it's just that we don't want to go to that thing and we don't want to participate if we do go to that thing. We are affirming this framing of the role of the Christian in public life. If we so ratify this modern project, then we can't be surprised when the results are more and more of the same until even what you regard as your private sphere is not regarded as your business anymore. In previous decades, it would have been regarded as your business, what you teach your children about sexual ethics. When you teach your children what the Bible says about their sexuality, about their bodies, that they are not their own, that bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body, that would have been regarded as your private sphere. And so you let the outside world do whatever the progressives want it to do, whatever the modern liberals want it to do. And if a minister gets up and says, we have to have abortion clinics in minority communities 
to save the planet from overpopulation, to manage the rate at which we reproduce. Well then, all the more, you can say, well, it's just my opinion. I suppose, I guess, I was pretty sure the Bible taught something else, but I guess it's just my opinion. And if somebody else is more confident and they say, no, it's not just our opinion. This is what the Bible clearly teaches. And that's false teaching and that's false doctrine. And that's a false gospel that this false minister is preaching. Will you get upset with them? Will you leave them to stand on their own or fall? In far too many cases, the answer is yes, because we ratify this by our silent acquiescence, by our passivity, by our stubborn refusal to participate, by our incessant excuse-making. I don't have time is not a statement of fact. It is a statement of priorities. But then that's to say our priority is to affirm the modern project so that we actually pursue our own pleasure. Why try so hard? We agree with Stephanie McNeil in Glamour Magazine. Why try so hard? Except it's not just the soft girls. It's also soft men who are cowards. And they love themselves. They love pleasure rather than loving what is good. They love having their itching ears tickled. And they don't like being given bad news, just like Ahab didn't like being given bad news. And that's why he had 400 prophets. Because one is not enough. You've got to create an echo chamber of only good news all the time. We're going to go against Ramoth Gilead. How's that going to work? Are we going to be successful? 400 prophets who are on my payroll? Yes? Great. When do we leave? Jehoshaphat? Jump in. Jehoshaphat, let's go fight the Syrians. Jehoshaphat says, not so fast. Are there any other prophets that we could consult? Well, there is one, but I hate him. Why do I hate him? Because he only ever tells me what I don't want to hear. Never mind that it's the truth. Yeah. Ahab was a soft man, not just a wicked man. He sold himself to sin. If he sprinkled in a little religiosity, it doesn't change the fact that he was wicked and he made Israel be wicked with him. He insisted on it, in fact. And he killed those who wouldn't go along with him. Back to James R. Wood in Comment Magazine. The social orders of modernity are constructed around such a free individual and seek to institutionalize the sovereignty of the human will. This means that religion and religious bodies, such as the church, must be stripped of any public authority, reduced to an enclosed private sphere, where their voice is permitted only as it's siloed. In such a framing, religion becomes an opinion, a private practice without public bearing. According to leading political theorist Pierre Manant, the original task of liberalism— which is the political philosophy undergirding modern political orders, was, quote, to establish that a religious opinion was of no interest to political authority, end quote. Manent argues that the movement of the Enlightenment as a whole had for its goal the establishment of the liberal, neutral, and agnostic state. This required domesticating the church, turning it into a strictly private association. Quote, the neutral state, Manent explains, quote, must work toward the church's complete disestablishment, transforming it into a strictly private association and reducing as much as possible its means of influence, end quote. Translation, if your church is just a social club and all you guys do is you get together and you talk about how your week was, make plans for the next time you're going to have dinner together, chat about how the Broncos are doing, catch up about how your kids' sports are going this season, if that's all you ever do, and you're never attending to the welfare of the city, you're doing exactly 
what it is the original task of liberalism wanted you to be doing as a so-called church. Never mind, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. Nobody lights a lamp and then hides it under a bushel. And oh, by the way, salt that has lost its savor is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And yet we have almost baked it into our doctrinal statements. We haven't gotten quite that brazen yet, but we've gotten as close as possible. We'll write it into trendy Christian books, and then we'll insist that those Christian books are the new measure of spirituality. You have to read this book and like it and say that it was so good and super convicting. And if you won't, if you don't, if you disagree with it, if you contradict it, if you challenge it, if you push back and you say, actually, this is complicit in the leading away to the slaughter of men, women, and children in our day, and this is not orthodox, this is not sound biblical teaching, this is corrupt and corrupted and corrupting. If you say that, you jeopardize the social club, but more to the point, and this is more of the reason why it's so upsetting, you upset the original task of liberalism. And if we don't have the language for that, once somebody does put it in those terms, we have to admit that that's exactly what is so frightening about it. That somebody would say, for instance, for example, God said to the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Jeremiah said that from Yahweh to those who were being led away to Babylon. Pray for the peace of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. The church, our English word, church, in the original Greek was ekklesia. The ekklesia was a gathering of the citizens of the polis or city to discuss the business of the city, to make decisions together as to the welfare of the city, not for no reason, but for a very intentional and God-honoring reason. The church in Greek was the ekklesia because these are the citizens of a heavenly kingdom, the heavenly city, the city of God, as Augustine wrote about. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to be reminded of that. We don't want to be confronted about that. And oh, by the way, maybe just maybe you'll be out of the club if you get really adamant about that. If you say, oh, by the way, have I mentioned that the ecclesia in ancient Greece only permitted the men who were old enough to vote or they were legally entitled to vote to speak? If I say that, and then that makes a different kind of a sense of Paul writing that he would not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but rather she is to keep silent in all the churches. If she has a question, she can ask her husband when she gets home. It puts a different kind of a sense to what it was that Paul was getting at. That that pairs nicely with the fact that the church was the ecclesia. And if we don't want to hear that and we don't want to talk about that and somebody nevertheless brings up those facts, maybe we just say, I'm really busy. I don't have time for this. That's not really my thing. That's really not my business. I'm really not interested. I'm really uncomfortable with this. Back to James R. Wood. This reduction of the church to a private association or voluntary society is an expression of the social contract theory foundational to liberal political theory. Social contract theory begins with a theoretical state of nature in which society does not yet exist. The basic unit out of which society is constructed is the detached pre-social individual. Such abstract autonomous individuals emerge as naked wills 
auto-originating and constructing everything around them driven by rational self-interest. Relations, personal or institutional, are non-existent from the outset and are entered into only voluntarily. This means society and social bodies are determined by an instrumental and consumerist or market logic. We contract for mutual self-interest, and this is what forms society. Society is merely the sum of the encounters in which these individuals collaborate to maximize their advantages. Any relations and obligations are chosen in the pursuit of the construction of the self or a world for one's own benefit. Authority is legitimate only if and when it is chosen and represents the will of the people and thus continually is chosen. Social contract theory shapes both our political and ecclesial Loyalties, it has created a new social imaginary of the church, one that has catalyzed its fractured state. Denominationalism, Peter Lightheart argues, has become the established religion of Western societies. When a church fails to meet felt needs and desires, many are quick to switch to another existing denomination or to construct an entirely new one. In modern liberal societies, the church is not so much a given reality to which one must respond, but a buffet of options for the choosing. And as we have seen with the rise of the nuns and the great dechurching, many increasingly opt out entirely. In his important recent studies, social scientist Ryan Burge has revealed that over the past 25 years, around 40 million Americans have stopped attending church. Even for those who remain in churches, many continue to neglect official teachings such as the Roman Catholic Church's position on contraception. Can this fractured church in such a culture still speak with any authority today? And even more challenging, what exactly is the church that we should listen to. Now, a thought or two. That is, I think, a big reason why the church is not speaking in any meaningful way because of not just denominationalism, but also ecumenicalism. Because ecumenicalism has served to rather reinforce liberalization. Doctrinal minimalism has rather reinforced the idea that we meet for the gospel. We are together for the gospel, but we narrowly define what the gospel is so that we can have as much agreement as humanly possible. And then we say, let's not get into the particulars of anything that is a consequence of the gospel. In other words, if the Great Commission was go and make disciples of all nations, we'd like to stop just after that part where you've got the business about baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But let's not not, not, not get into teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Because once we start getting into teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you as an inescapable part of the Great Commission from Jesus, from Christ our Lord, well, then we'll have to talk about our disagreements over what did Christ command us, over the fact that Christ did command us. And it's not just believe whatever you want, and God's here to make sure that you have all of the therapy for free you could ever want. If we had to actually admit that some of our problems are a result of us being disobedient and suffering the consequences individually and corporately, then our fake unity would splinter. It would fly apart. At a local church level, you would see people getting up and walking out and leaving to go to a different church. At a denominational level, you would see Churches saying, we're going to leave this denomination and join some other or start our own. At the denominational level, you have a jockeying for position and you have those who are conservative being presented as legalistic if they talk at all about what Jesus commanded or the consequences. 
when we don't obey what Jesus commanded, when we're not faithful, when we are salt that's lost, it's savor, and we're nothing more than a social club. Those who say such things, if it's a choice between them staying and other people leaving or them being made to feel very unwelcome until they either shape up or they themselves leave, and then we can retain more of the people who we have very poorly equipped, we have very poorly trained to understand these things, to make sense of these things. We've kept them simple. We've kept them on a steady diet of milk so as to not have to get into choppy waters with our broader denomination of churches, our broader culture, our surrounding community. We would rather keep them, and we'll say they're the weaker brother, but then never mind that we fed them a diet that was always going to leave them anemic. And they will always be the weaker brother. It's the gift that keeps on giving if at root, what we're really afraid of is not them leaving, but rather conflict with the modern project. In fact, that is to say, we are conforming to the pattern of this world. And we are not actually committed to being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We'll bemoan the fact that we're not complete and equipped for every good work. We'll regret that. But when we have the opportunity to teach the whole counsel of God or to be taught the whole counsel of God and to consider it, to reason together regarding the whole counsel of God, we might just be content with the great dechurching if it's either that or conflict with the world, being hated by the world for his namesake. Back to James R. Wood. The church's public voice is undermined due to the liberal state's domestication efforts and the market logic endemic to modern society. But to make things worse, the church is divided into a multitude of denominations, and such division makes it very difficult to hear with any clarity. Her voice is muffled. One of the premier ecclesiologists of our day, Ephraim Radner, goes even further. He argues that a divided church's ability to hear the word is tragically disabled. Such a church has lost the capacity to properly discern, respond to, and declare God's word. Thus, the public witness of the church is crowded out, due to the cacophony of denominational division. Denominationalism deafens. How can people hear the message of the church when so many churches are speaking independent of and often at odds with one another? Denominationalism institutionalizes division, according to Lightheart, and enshrines choice. Now, let me just pause right there and let me push back a little bit on a couple of fronts here. One, Lightheart thinks we all need to reunite with Rome. And He's not especially clear from what I've heard and read on the need for Rome to semper reformanda. Rome, in this equation, as I see it, would get to stick to its guns and dictate terms to all of the Protestants, and the Protestants would just give up on being Protestant. We would all just become Roman Catholic again, and that's a very, very concerning prospect when you see Rome— having been rebellious itself. The Pope and the bishops and the cardinals having been very much (laughs) the ones who enshrined their own choice over and against the clear teaching of Scripture. So I don't like Lightheart being held up here as the spokesperson for how we have the church speaking today. But I would say at least at a local level, at least within a church, if we're saying we agree on what is sound doctrine, at least within a network of churches, there should be some capacity to say, hey, here's what the Bible says. Here's what we believe. We've got it in our doctrinal statement. We believe these things. We say we believe these things. We sing songs to this effect. We preach sermons to this effect. We have 
youth programs and college programs, and we have small group. We have so many groups and programs dedicated to affirming the truth of God's word, teaching the truth of God's word. Maybe also together we discuss what is true relative to the decisions that we need to make in our community. Maybe at a minimum, you start with those who agree as to the truth of God's word saying, this is not just our opinion, this is what the Bible clearly teaches, or come let us reason together on the truth of God's word applying to the business of making decisions together. The truth of God's word being actually the cure for what ails our community, our people. Maybe you start there and you commit yourself to doing nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit. And you say, we're not going to just let whoever is the bossiest, the most outspoken, we're not going to let just whoever is the fastest talker or the most intimidating dictate what it is that we can make of the time, but we're going to treat one another with genuine humility. We're going to love one another well. We're going to be humble before the text. We're going to be humble before God together and pray for the welfare of our city and seek its peace and seek its welfare. Maybe you start there and you grow up individually and you grow up as a church. You grow up as a network of churches more and more into the pattern of Christ, into the mind of Christ. What I don't like about Lightheart being referenced here is he seems to have rather the top-down approach of let's all go back to Rome because Rome knows best. And Rome is not going to change their position. Therefore, the path of least resistance is for our ecumenical movements, which have embraced doctrinal minimalism, to just defer to Rome again. And maybe it'll be better this time. But in that case, what if it's not? And what if this isn't just about the church needing to speak, but who is the church? Is our local church in a community the church? Back to James R. Wood. Liberalism replaces objective goods with subjective values and sets up a dichotomy between facts and values, which map onto another dichotomy of public versus private. It reduces religion to a matter of private opinion of values, in contrast to public truth and facts. In such a framing, church is a matter of opinion and a matter of choice. But to convert religion into a mere choice is already to deny its reality. It is, as philosopher D.C. Schindler argues, to absolutize potency over act, to privilege options and possibilities over the given. Liberalism, Schindler posits, means a neutralizing of the actuality of the given truth, whose fundamental symbol is the church, in order to legitimize and provide space for choosing among diverse options. But the church is a given reality, not a group of individuals who decide to come together with like-minded folks. Christianity, argues Schindler, is a form, a concrete and visible reality in the world. Thus, the essence of liberalism is the rejection of the church as the actual presence of Christ in history. This undergirds denominationalism, according to which Christians can choose which church to belong to. Unfortunately, coming back to Radner, all choices are now available to the contemporary Christian except the church Catholic. Now, again, this seems like the siren song of Roman Catholics and the Counter-Reformation to me. I don't like that, and I don't think you should either. Part of the reason I don't like this is because in reading Scripture, in reading the biblical text, which should be the basis for the unity that we want to have, otherwise, where do we find out about the church? Well, we just ask the church. Well, where did the church get its view of itself? Well, from the church. Well, at what point did the church get its view of itself from Scripture? Isn't church informing 
us as to what church should be and what the scriptures should be, but shouldn't the scriptures be informing the church as to who the church is? In scripture, in the New Testament, I see Paul and Barnabas going separate ways and honoring God, ministering, preaching the gospel, planting churches, edifying the saints in different fields because they couldn't agree about John Mark. You could say, ah, that's prioritizing choice, the choice of Paul, the choice of Barnabas. They couldn't agree, and they went separate directions, and that's bad, and that's sad, and I don't like that. But wait a second. Go back to the Old Testament and see Judah and Israel divided, and see the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, being king over just Judah because of the sin of Solomon. As wise as he was, as much wisdom as he had been given, he sinned. He loved many foreign women. And that's a parable after a fashion, I believe it really happened, but it's also a foreshadowing of what happened with Rome. And so the kingdom is divided in Rehoboam's day. And Jeroboam is king over Israel, and Rehoboam is king over Judah. And when they're just about to go to blows and fight, God says, don't go and fight your relatives. This division is from me, because sometimes division is from God. And isn't it interesting that they both ended up in much the same place? Because why? They sinned in the same way that Solomon had sinned. They worshiped the gods of the nations. They conformed to the pattern of this world. And so in turn, they're each given over to conquest by foreign empires, by the godless, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. It could have been anybody, but God chose the instrument of his judgment on Israel and Judah. And so also, division can be from God and not an either or of either people made a choice to separate themselves or this is from God. The Judaizers are another example. Coming to Antioch, preaching a different gospel to the Gentile believers. And you could say, well, the Gentile believers not embracing all of the Jewishness of the Judaizers introduced division. And so unity should have been predicated on the most forceful, pushy, adamant, confident voices. Those were clearly the voices of the Judaizers. And so it was a mistake to not just give the Judaizers what they wanted. It was a mistake to have a council, but then what folly would that be? The Judaizers were preaching a false gospel. If they had actually been in the position of James and Peter If they had actually been the ones with the authority proper, say, for instance, some 14 centuries later, 15 centuries later, maybe we would be calling Paul Protestant and the Judaizers would say, we are the church Catholic. Nevertheless, unity is not a bad thing just because some people get the wrong idea about unity. And division can be from God, especially when we're talking about dividing the sheep from the goats or the wheat from the tares. What if the tares actually get to be in positions of authority sometimes, and they are the ones who say, you all have to be tares so we can have unity. In that case, do the wheat say, I guess we'll become tares? Do the sheep say, I guess we'll become goats for the sake of unity? Is that the kind of unity that God wants? Clearly not. The kind of unity that will speak into the broader culture from a position of weakness like that will not be preferable to a church divided into denominations. But then those are not our only two options. This is somebody who wants Peter Lightheart's vision to be realized, it seems to me. For the sake of time, I'll skip on down. And let's read 
from the last two paragraphs. Can the church still speak? Perhaps the better question in our modern world is, even if it did, would we listen? It is hard to hear the muffled voice of a divided church that has been imagined into the margins of opinion and other worldly concerns. But Christians should reconsider the church as the given bride of Christ, who is also the mother of believers. And we should position ourselves first and foremost to listen to that church wherever we are. And we should continually pray that ecclesiastical leaders will continue to find ways to make the church's voice more audible to the world and that the Spirit would go out and give those with ears the ability to hear. James R. Wood is Assistant Professor of Ministry at Redeemer University and an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church in America and co-host of the Civitas podcast produced by the Theopolis Institute. Oh, by the way, when it comes to the Theopolis Institute, the president of their board of directors is Peter Lightheart. So go figure. In any event, it's a good question. And I think whether we're looking at this from a top-down or a bottom-up perspective, the question, can the church still speak and will anyone listen, is hard to answer in the affirmative. On an individual basis, but that is to say a private basis, whatever is regarded as private, still less and less clear. The answer is, sure, as long as you don't scare off the consumers, that is, the seekers, that is, those who are looking for a church to call home, or those who have been attending for a little while. We don't want to scare them off and give them a bad impression of what we're about, but also those who have been here for a really long time, even if their theology and their manner of life is not particularly God-honoring or faithful, even if it needs to be corrected. We don't want to scare them off either because, I mean, we've known them for a very, very long time. We don't want to upset them. We don't want them to leave. Those who are involved in public life and who maybe think that the liberal project, the modern project, is quite good and quite correct, and they see no issue with it at all. We don't want to upset them and ruffle their feathers and offend them. So we'll try and avoid saying anything that would err in that direction. But then also those who are not particularly well-informed on these things, who maybe could use some information, who could use an education on these things, who could stand to be introduced to the practical realities, but also what does God's word say? Ah, we don't want to make them uncomfortable either. And so maybe let's just not get into any of this. If you privately want to get involved in public life, that's your business. But then that keeps the church free to engage on a case-by-case with the private life of those who are members, those who attend, to the extent that they're willing to be engaged with regards to their private lives. But the church, having something to say about their private life, if it intersects with what the church is not supposed to be saying about public life, well, I guess we won't say anything about their private lives either. But then guess what? This is part of why it was so easy during the COVID lockdowns for a lot of churches to shut their doors because they weren't saying much anyways. They weren't trying to be relevant anyways. And so when they were called non-essential, they were happy to ratify that because that's how they see their gatherings also. They also see their role in both the public and private life of their members as non-essential. Some proper conforming of our expectations to the pattern of this world 
was accomplished, whether that was the whole point in the first place, or it was just a happy byproduct or accident. At the end of the day, the effect revealed that a lot of churches in America saw themselves as non-essential. And it's hard to go back quietly, even once you're allowed to, without, in some sense, agreeing that, yes, we are irrelevant. Not just non-essential, we're irrelevant except insofar as we provide individual enjoyment. If you stop being individually enjoyable, well then perhaps this isn't for you. We're not going to tell you to leave, but if you decide to, we would be really disappointed, but then we're more afraid of being isolated and being viewed as enemies. We're more afraid of saying that, yes, in fact, we are essential, and here's why, and here's how. What's so interesting to me about this public versus private new social imaginary and the kind of unity that is preferred is that it bears so little relation to what we find praised in the best examples in the biblical text. When the gospel is being preached in the New Testament, you have Christians being hauled before the city council, in some cases, with the claim that these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Not for no reason is Paul able to minister to the household of Caesar, but the reason is it's upsetting, it's disruptive. There's not unity that's driving his arrest, his house arrest, his transportation, his being flogged, his being tried ultimately, his being put to death. It's not unity. It's not because there was an excess of unity between him and the world, but rather it's because there was an uncompromising commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what the church most Catholic has to be predicated on. If the church most Catholic is predicated on unity, but we're not attentive to the particulars of what that unity confesses and believes, and scripture is not the final authority, well, then I say it's like the false prophets and the bad priests, hirelings in the Old Testament who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's us saying unity, unity, when there is no unity. But what would be better than us just saying, well, that's not so good. We don't want that. We don't want unity, unity, when there is no unity. What would be better is if we had the courage to have unity together on what we should have unity about. The church should speak, and clearly, but the church can't speak to the broader outside world. If the saints can't even speak candidly, reasonably, boldly among themselves. And so the first step has to be the saints reacquiring the capacity to talk amongst themselves in reference to the biblical text. If we can't do that, then we cannot actually engage with the outside world together. How can two walk together unless they be in agreement? If we won't agree, but then we say what we really want is unity, then I say we're double-minded and we don't actually want unity. We want unity, unity, when there is no unity. We want the appearance of unity. We want the pleasure of unity. We want the feeling of unity. We don't want the substance of it. We definitely don't want to do the hard work that it takes to pursue unity. We definitely don't want the effects of unity, actually, either, because if we were unified together, there would be all the more of a clear contrast between we as Christians in the church, we as 
the saints who make up the body of Christ, and the world that we are not conformed to the pattern of. That's when conflict comes. That's when they start hauling you before the city council to say these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The church will not speak, whether it can or it can't, if those who call themselves saints and those who call themselves shepherds insist on the definition of a good testimony and fellowship and godliness even being passivity and cowardice and softness. Until that changes, we will continue to be regarded as non-essential and irrelevant. And at a certain point, we're regarded as salt that has lost its savor. And Jesus says, we're good for nothing at that point, except to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. I pray that that is not what happens to me or you, but that's all the time I've got for this episode. I need to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.